All right, good morning. Welcome to Surf Community Church. How are you doing? We're good. We're hanging. We're glad. We are really glad you are here gathering with us. Um, yeah, and as we just highlight some of what's going on in our community, I want to just read a quick uh, verse that God has been laying on my heart this morning, uh, just amidst all that's going on across the world. And so it says in 1 John chapter 4 uh, that God is love. That he is love, and I'm failing to find my spot. There we are. All right, now we're happening. Uh, So God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. There is no fear in love, but perfect fear, uh, perfect love casts out fear. And, uh, you know, obviously there is a ton going on. It is a historic moment uh, with it being declared a pandemic across the world. And so, you know, you don't need me as the media outlet, so I have no desire to the access in the world of what to do and what not to do. I think one of the things I just wanted to encourage us with is uh, recognizing that the church, and we say this all the time, is spiritual family. Like that's actually what we are. Uh, So it's not about a building or a place. It is about a people that continues to gather. And so we're really glad that you're here. Um, We want to be thoughtful and kind and caring towards those who might have said, hey, I'm not out and about because of health risk. And and we get that. We want to support people like that. We stream our services every Sunday on Facebook. So for us, you know, those who are listening online, we're glad you're here with us, uh, you know, somewhere else. And we make that readily available. And going forward, we don't know what will happen as far as like how often Often will we get to meet on Sundays here? We don't know if they choose to shut uh, like school systems down, if we'll be able to gather or not, but we will be gathering. We'll be gathering in homes. We'll be doing some other things if that's the case. So stay tuned because we don't have any other information um, and stay in prayer. Stay in prayer for uh, around the world and for our neighbors and our friends. And I really believe this is actually a wonderful time uh, to continue to move with radical hospitality, right? To open up our homes, uh, to care for neighbors, to love people around us, even amidst some of the uncertainties, all right? So that's the quick word on Corona stuff. And stay Stay, stay tuned for just how we'll be gathering uh, going forward, all right? Um, some of the, the gatherings that should be coming up, hopefully are coming up, uh, is that we are already talking about Good Friday. We plan to host a uh, worship service here, prayer and worship uh, on Good Friday, which is April 10th, and it should be a really, really wonderful time. We did this last year, uh, where even we call a church fast on this day, just to be leaning into God and his presence and um, kind of in expectation of all things Easter. And so we want to invite you to that. Mark that. It's for the whole family. Um, And it's a little bit, it is more somber in nature. Like we kind of lean in that direction on Friday night uh, for, you know, a big celebration on Easter Sunday. Uh, With that, Easter Sunday is April 12th. Uh, Who are you inviting? Again, whether it's going to be in homes, if if we're not all together here, uh, there will be a place to invite people to Easter. And so we are excited about that. And one of the things we are doing, assuming we do gather here, would be uh, we are also doing a lily drive. So in the email I sent out this week. Uh, If you didn't get that, you'll get it this week. Uh, But one of the ways we're decorating around here uh, is actually in memory and in honor of those who some of us have lost some loved ones this year. And so you can purchase lilies to honor those people, as many as you'd like. Um, You can do that in cash. You can put it in an envelope in the giving box at the back. Or uh, again, online, we'll have options for you, all right? So we'll order those. Uh, They'll be here. And then after the service, obviously, you pick up your lily or lilies and uh, you take them home. So it's kind of hopefully a neat way to remember people and to also decorate uh, the sanctuary.
All right. Uh, lastly, in just a couple weekends, we have a generous overflow experience coming. And so we've been uh, having, there's been lots of conversations around here around generosity and whole life generosity. This is a great opportunity to be in Kelly Colton's home. She's opening up her home uh, to invite people in. It's a Friday night. There'll be a meal then and a lot of great stories and videos. And then Saturday morning, uh, breakfast again uh, till about 1130 or 12 in the afternoon. So we're hoping you want to go to that, come hang out, let us know, and we will connect you. All right. Let me pray as we uh, dive into the sermon. So God, we do pause and we do recognize that there are tons of things going on around the world right now. Um, And we are thankful that Jesus, you offer a perfect love that really can drive out our fear. And so, Lord, we pray, uh, we offer our fears, our worries, our anxieties. We pray alongside those who uh, right now are maybe experiencing a lot of worry. Uh, God, we even uh, want to mine our own hearts for, for maybe the underneath the surface worries that might be in us, and we want to offer them to you. And so we pray that you would uh, draw near to us, and God, that you would speak to us in this time. We open to you and pray that in your name. Amen. All right, so hopefully we can laugh this morning as well, okay? So play the game with me. Uh, last year at this time, if you would, try to guess. Me and my family, we would do something Sunday nights, 7 to 9 p.m. Can anyone take a guess? 7 to 9 p.m. Anyone got a good shot? Anybody? Hey, we're quiet this morning. Fair enough. Uh, it's American Idol. Don't judge me, okay? Yes, it is American Idol. Please give me a second. Don't judge me, all right? So last year at this time, we were all into American Idol, and that involved this man, Alejandro Aranda, okay? This was my guy. Go to that next slide for me, if you would. Oh, there he is, all right? So I was raving for him. I was totally sucked into everything he did, uh, enamored with his talent. So mostly American Idol has been singing other people's songs. Uh, he comes in and Unless they forced him to, which they did a couple times, but when he was not forced to, he got to sing his own songs, and he was amazing. He made it all the way to the top two. He got beat out by Lane Hardy, for those of you who know, who's like now 19, he was 18, and I'm telling you, he must have won the teeny bopper vote, okay? That's how Lane won. There's no way. So anyways, I digress there. So we would look last year at this time to Sunday nights, 7 to 9 p.m., because we knew American Idol was happening. We'd gather here in the morning with our spiritual family. We'd take some naps, eat some lunch, do some stuff around the home, last-minute serve stuff, clean, whatever's needed, and then it was 7 p.m., right? So it was our version of the treat yourself, right, a la Parks and Rec, okay? So treat yourself in our home at this time last year always involved American Idol. It was like diaper changes 7 to 9 p.m., like change yourself, kids. Uh, Toddler meltdown, like turn on. They're like, figure it out, right? I'm just kidding. But this was, this was Sunday night, okay? Last year, our Sabbaths were on Mondays. They are now Sundays, but, or uh, Saturdays. And uh, with that, it was like our way to treat ourselves. So this morning, as we dive into the life of Jesus, we're going to see a very opposite posture of all that. All right, if you would grab some Bibles in front of you, uh, Mark chapter 14, uh, we are going to see a very different posture than kind of the consuming, all me, treat yourself perspective, okay? So we've been traveling through the life of Jesus together as you turn there uh, for now 28 weeks, and uh, it has been powerful to immerse ourselves in this life of Jesus together. Uh, Where we're headed this morning is we're going to unpack Mark 14 verses 1 through 11, Turn there with me. There's, for those who like the roadmap, we're going to really just kind of say, what's the point? Okay, so we'll make sure we answer that question. We've got a few driving questions for the morning. So what's the point? What does it take to get our hearts to this place? Because uh, we're going to see Jesus interact with this woman in a way that affirms who she is and what she's about. So what does it take for us to get our hearts there? 
And then what does this story mean for apprentices and disciples and disciple makers, those who are multiplying their lives? And yes, there'll even be a secret question number four, all right? So that's where we're kind of headed this morning. Let's dive in. Mark 14. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. Now, in the life of Jesus, we are literally in his last earthly week, okay? Uh, What this signals is actually Tuesday of that week. Friday, he's getting crucified. Sunday, he's going to rise again. So things are getting dicey, right? Like all things are kind of coming to a culmination and opposition is at a peak. Now, this festival of the unleavened bread, uh, there were numerous Jewish specials through the year. This was one of the big ones. And so literally Jews around the world, around the ancient Near East, would start flocking into Jerusalem to celebrate together. So it's a bustling time. There's a lot of activities. The Jewish leaders are at this time, they are done with Jesus, right? Like they're literally trying to kill him, but they say, hey, we can't do it during this festival because people could riot. They knew that Jesus had immense popularity with the crowds and and with many people. He had touched and healed and taught and done all these things. And they're all kind of in and around Jerusalem, right? So they're going, okay, they will riot if we kill him. And they also know that they can't kill him on their own legal authority. They actually need Rome's help, okay? So that's kind of the backdrop, and the scene then shifts. Verse 3. While he, Jesus, was in Bethany, reclining at the table of the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. Now, interesting setup, right? Uh, We have, they're in Bethany, so this is only two miles away from Jerusalem. It's located at the southeast end of the Mount of Olives. You got a picture here on the screen for just a moment. You can kind of see, and this is on top of the Mount of Olives. And then what you can see right in the middle there, if you see that golden dome, uh, that is the the Dome of the Rock, which is actually a Muslim mosque. But in Jesus' day, it's still currently now, it sits on top of the Temple Mount where the Temple of Jesus' day would have sat. All right, so you can see it. It's only two miles walk, and yes, in pre-car reality, that's not that far, okay? So Jesus would regularly hang out in Bethany, go in Jerusalem, kind of go back and forth when he was visiting Jerusalem, all right? So in this setting, in Jerusalem, you have an unnamed woman in the crowded house of Simon the leper who brings this perfume and dumps it on Jesus' head. You can go to the next slide if you would. So it's not your usual scenario, but in the Jewish mind, this would have also drawn up the anointing of previous kings, all right? And the most famous would have been a thousand years prior to Jesus, of course, King David. And so Samuel, the prophet at one point, did something very similar. He took oil, anoints it, and puts it over David's head, right? So this is a, a kingly proclamation that this woman is making. Now, the biggest problem, though, is that the perfume was a ton, worth a ton of money, okay? So according to the story, this started to bother people, right? It was worth over a year's full of wages. And so I decided just to look up, hey, what's the medium income of the U.S.? Let's do just a minor comparison here. So in 2019, it was roughly a bit over 48000 across the country. And then in Kansas, it was even 10000 more, so roughly 58000 a little bit more than that. And so imagine this woman taking something similar. It's real hard when you go back 2,000 years. It doesn't exactly work, but, but similar. Think of taking the medium income value and dumping it in a single act uh, of this extravagance, of this anointing over Jesus' head. 
Uh, at the time, perfume was only accessible in jars. So you'd have smaller jars and larger jars and different size. That's why she's breaking it and then using it in this fashion. And because of that, mostly uh, perfume was carried around and like put in your home on a mantle to really just as a symbol of wealth, right? It's, it's like having an extremely expensive piece of nice art, right? So that's how most people would use it. Every once in a while, someone would use it. Rarely in a public setting, rarely like anything like this. Mark mentions it's an alabaster jar, so he's kind of like, hey, look, this is one of the nice jars. This is one of the large jars. Look what happens here. We're not talking just anything. We're talking a big jar, and it's made of pure nard. So pause with me for the moment, because if you don't, we can miss the audacity of this moment, right? We're in some random guy's home, and this woman approaches Jesus, breaks it on the floor. Who knows how that, that home began to smell, of course, as she did that, and it's a big pause. And I'd love to ask, like, what, what's your largest purchase? What's the largest purchase you've ever made? And did it benefit you? Right? I mean, for me, yeah, it's, it, the quick one that comes to mind is down payment for a home, right? And it definitely benefits me, right? It, it's, it's absolutely. So the mar- imagine making one of the largest, if not the largest purchases of your life and having it not benefit you, have it completely going towards this person of Jesus funneling towards someone else. Now, in this moment, the response in the room was outrage. We see it here in verse four and five. And what's so common with the, with the outrage, and, and this is where it probably speaks to us if, you're, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, is very often people can uh, spew outrage and yet cloak it in false spirituality or false religiosity, right? Like they say that money could have been used for the poor. How dare she do that? The implication is, look, if I had that type of wealth and if that were my perfume jar, I would never do that. But if I were to do something like that, I would sell it and then give it to the poor, right? It's pointing to their own, what they think is their own superiority, all right? And so they begin to ridicule her harshly. It says they mock her, they shame her. They believe this was a very, very foolish thing to do, and they let her know it. So let's see how Jesus responds. Verse 6, leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And so Jesus brings harsh rebuke, right? Like he's not, he's not mincing words and he brings the shame back onto those who are mocking her. He stands up for her. And just kind of a, a mini side note here, th- this story is not about how to take care of the poor or not. Okay, it is not about that because Jesus' entire ministry uplifted the poor, uplifted the marginalized, the downtrodden, the outcast, the isolated. The very setting of this story even gives us a great anecdotal expression of it because Sam, Simon is called Simon the leper. He probably did not yet, he did not currently have leprosy, but he probably previously did because his home is packed in. Nobody would go to a leper's home. Jesus had previously healed him, right? So Jesus is the type and doing the types of things that none of the religious leaders of his day would have done. And this is a great instance of it. They're in the home of a previous leper. So we want to make sure we don't confuse that with the crowd that day. This, this story is not about our generosity towards the poor because everything in the life and ministry of Jesus says that if you follow him, yes, you are most certainly called to serve, bless, love, spend time with, be generous towards the materially poor. All right. So we don't, we don't want to miss that. Jesus in the moment instead is redirecting them. 
says, the time is urgent. He says, I'm leaving this world. You'll have plenty of time to serve the poor and you must and you should go and do that. But I'm about to die. And this woman has discerned the urgency. And amidst all of that, she has chosen to extravagantly bless me. And this moment will be so memorable that here we are 2,000 years later and 7,000 miles geographically away from the original story. And we are hearing about it, right? It will be told alongside the good news of Jesus uh, for, for, for more, right? And the fascinating irony in the story is that Mark doesn't even name the woman, right? Like this story will be told of you as long as the gospel goes, and yet this woman is not named. Now, most scholars believe it's Mary of Magdalene, especially when you look at some of the other uh, Matthew's version of the story and John's. It is most likely Mary Magdalene, who is also the Mary and Martha, if you know that story by any chance. If you also know Mary was previously said to have been cast out uh, demons uh, by Jesus, she was healed by Jesus. And this is, the, if it is Mary Magdalene, it is the same Mary who is the first to interact with the risen Jesus after his crucifixion, death, and then resurrection. So, Whoever this woman is, whether her or not, Jesus affirms her, and she, he affirms the actions of this woman. So how does the story fall out? It says in verse 10, 11, Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, the guys who've been following the last three years, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. This moment was so audacious that it becomes the trigger for Jesus' betrayal by one of his very own 12 who had been literally to this point about three years walking along, hanging with Jesus all the time. And it is exactly the person that the Jewish leaders were looking for. They needed an insider to get to Jesus. So that's the intensity of the story. That's the audacity of the moment. So what's all the point? If I were to make one point, it's something that Jesus affirms extravagant worship towards him. Right? And it's worship that doesn't seem to make much sense according to the operating values and systems of the world. And I don't know where you're at in your journey, but it might even make you uncomfortable as well, or me uncomfortable, right? Because extravagant worship is costly. It's costly in terms of what other people might think of you. It's costly in terms of our time, like what we actually choose to do with our time. And it's also literally costly in the financial sense, uh, as this woman shows. Let's get a few different examples of this, though. This woman is in this posture in the story, right? If you'd go to that next picture, perfect. She is utterly vulnerable, right? When she does this, this is in a public scene, lots of people, and prostrates in front of Jesus, breaks this, this nard and pours it over him. She does something that is seemingly foolish. And I won't speak for you, but often even this sort of picture makes me feel uncomfortable. Right? Like this sort of thing feels strange. And it feels strange if, if I'm in a home setting to do something like this woman did. Like I, I've never done anything like this. This type of extravagance is seen as weird. But ironically, our culture does actually value extravagant worship. Like we value it all the time, especially for me, it's easy in the world of sports, right? Uh, it, is, it is a very costly experience to go to Arrowhead. It's financially costly. I don't know if you know, but last year's season tickets, about 1,000 uh, for the season for upper deck seats, so the real nosebleeders, about 1,600 for the lower end zone seats. Those are like the cheap range of stuff. Uh, we just won the Super Bowl, right? We're, we're the best team in the world right now. Guess what? Those tickets are going up for all you t season ticket holders. Uh, even more fun, I I wanted to know what was the range of ticket prices for this past Super Bowl, right? And similar to the woman, a one-time urgent event for worship, if you will. Uh, in this past Super Bowl, $4,220 was the low end. 
and up to 60 grand at the high end. Now, yes, most people watch the Super Bowl on a TV. This is according to StubHub's uh, analysis. But I'll tell you, I mean, I, I saw even people after in Starbucks, like I heard lots, of, I mean, if you didn't notice, there were thousands of Kansas Cityans, okay? So it's not like people did not make the journey to Miami. Many, many, many did. It was almost like a home game, all right? So Kansas City showed up. And I'm not railing and pointing fingers here, all right? I was one of the worshipers on Juniper Drive uh, down the street and then in our home as well, cheering my head off, okay? But here's what we need to unearth. What we need to unearth in our culture, often in our own hearts, is that we do often value extravagant worship, just not towards Jesus. <laughs> and that's hard. Like, we, we, we have to sit in that for a little bit. Because I believe that the affirmation of Jesus towards this woman, it, 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 I think that indicates that we should be following this sort of lifestyle, that there's space for this. And so if that's the case, what has to happen in our hearts to actually scratch the surface where, where we would be compelled to actually do such a thing, right? If Jesus is affirming her, what would it look like if we were to model our lives on this? And so I think lots, but firstly, a conviction of who Jesus is, if, if he is who he says he is, right? That, that conviction is pretty key. But then I believe a very real pathway of confession and repentance, all right? I believe that confession and repentance are the crucial preparations for extravagant worship. Like we don't, we don't just like drum this up or check mark this box or most of us just kind of move away from it anyways, but it doesn't really work like that. I don't think we force ourselves to do that. It's instead being compelled by a love for Jesus, by his love and a vision for his kingdom and to how it works. And I'm reminded of the opening words of Jesus when he shows up on the scene, according to Mark, what is the first thing he says? He says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And repent and believe are command words. They're necessary responses to Jesus's kingdom. Repenting is, is yes, maybe a strong word that we're not used to hearing. Uh, so it simply means to change our thinking and to change our actions. It's where we turn our hearts and our minds and our bodies towards the voice of God and his direction rather than our own voices or our own culture's voices. There's lots of voices that we can trust and believe, right? And so repenting is when we go, yeah, I'm going to value what God has to say in this situation. Believing is when we trust Jesus, right? When, when that voice wins out in our thoughts, in our emotions, in our attitudes, and in our actions. And this woman, Mary Magdalene, or, or unnamed woman, she had a past of immense brokenness. If it is Mary Magdalene, she has a past of immense brokenness. You know, the bondage of being filled with seven demons, like no bueno, right? I mean, I, I don't know what that means, right? I don't know what that would be like to be under that sort of bondage. It's hard to imagine that. Uh, but honestly, whatever Jesus did to heal her, to befriend her, to love her, to value her, to give her grace and truth and challenge and sacrificial agape, right? That sacrificial love, it transformed her life. To the point where Mary, at this moment, she does not know Jesus is gonna go get crucified. Like, we know that 2,000 years now. She does not know that. She believed he was the Messiah. Like, she believed he was the rightful king, and she was acting in a similar way as Samuel did, you know, 1,000 years prior to honor him, bless him, and anoint him and say, this is the guy, right? It was only Jesus' interpretation in the story. He says, look, thanks, Mary. Like, you're preparing for my burial. I'm about to die. So he helps people to see it. So is her experience of her own brokenness that provides the transformation to believe that Jesus was actually the Messiah 
and that he was actually worth this, this type of extravagant moment. So it's repentance, it's confession that unearths us towards the life of extravagant worship. Um, since the beginning of this year, so it's only been about three months, we've started to kind of use this language of moving our heart postures from consuming to contending. All right, it's one of the new pieces of language that we're really beginning to lean into as a church family, as a spiritual family. It's moving away from our natural consuming postures that we find ourselves in, right? Because consuming is easy. We consume the Netflix, bin, Netflix binging, the Amazon clicking, and the magical porch delivery that I love, the endless options of restaurants and breweries and fast food change. And I'm not pointing fingers, right? Remember Alejandro, like this was my, ba- my, my, my thing last year, all right? What God is doing, though, is beginning to move us on this pathway towards contending, right? How do we posture differently? Because contending means to stretch, means to reach, means to fight for something. And when we say that around here, what we're specifically wanting to be shaped and formed by is contending for more of God's presence. And we actually believe God wants to pour out his love and his goodness and his mercies right into the depths of our souls in the everyday here and now reality. We want to be a people who are learning to contend for our city. We want to pray on our knees often for those where we live, where we work, where we play, and where we learn. And yeah, what a time to contend. Right? I mean, the, the news media outlet, it, it is, it, it's tough to work through. I went to Target and like there was no toilet paper and I wasn't even looking to load up, right? You're just like, wow, I've never seen empty shelves before. That is wild. Uh, you know, the entire country of Italy has canceled all their flights. The NBA and MLS have, have suspended seasons. We can go on and on, right? The real question is, will we, will we be a people that are marked by fear or will we be a people that are found to be bold and courageous? And there are reasons to go grab extra toilet paper and there are reasons to refrain from, like, okay? So we can make space for that. Absolutely. We want to love and serve people. But are we contending in this city at this time when people are worried, when people are isolated? Like, will we actually act as the hands and feet of Jesus? There are teams of people, of followers of Jesus right now who are going and ministering to people in, in Wuhan province. Like they're going in to love and serve and meet the needs of those who are suffering the most. It's powerful. So will we be a people of radical hospitality in some similar ways? You know, this woman sat literally at the presence of God in this moment, right? She leaned in and she contended boldly at a moment where everyone was making fun of her and she poured out a year's worth of wages to proclaim that Jesus is the king, that he's the Lord, that he's worth all of this. And so will we allow that woman's contending to influence us? That's a big question. Another driver for us. What does this story mean real briefly for disciples and disciple makers? When we use that word disciple, it means you're apprentice of Jesus. It means you're saying, I'm following him. Maybe you're here and you're curious or you're open to following Jesus. You're investigating what that might lean, you know, what that might mean for you. Uh, this is one of those stories for if you're searching for Jesus, uh, where, where the 12 are not super helpful. Uh, they're actually in the room. We don't hear a lot about them except the one who chooses to betray Jesus. That's a fun one. And uh, we, we don't hear about these 12 who had spent the rest of that three years years, roughly, walking around, hanging out with Jesus continually. Maybe they were harshly rebuking the woman as well. We don't really know. Uh, They were friends, again, if it's Mary of Magdalene. But we actually don't want to look too much to them in this moment. We instead want to look to the one, to this one woman who is extravagantly worshiping this Lord. Right? And so that's that's a shift. So if you're an apprentice of Jesus, one, you should also be encouraged that sometimes we really blow it. 
<laughs> or, or we're just quiet when we should be stepping out, right? Like those are sometimes the things that we can learn and say, yeah, sometimes we don't have it all together and there can be some encouragement there. For those in the room who are a part of our uh, commissioned disciple leaders, disciple-making leaders, I want to encourage you that we, what this story teaches us is to be lead confessors, lead repenters, and yes, lead contenders as well. Like, I would want to encourage, if you're here and you're one of our commission leaders in huddles, is don't uh, hide your brokenness, right? Like, learn how to confess open, openly, honestly, and vulnerability. Like, we have not arrived. No one has arrived, right? And, and I would want us to be the type of people who confess our brokenness prior to people even asking us, that we go first, that we learn to confess our hidden underneath motives of our sins, our flaws, our failures. And as we do so, what we find is that God, in his upside-down way of working, God's Spirit begins to heal us and humble us and actually align us uh, into greater amounts of truth, right? Like, we get out of isolation. We get out of hypocrisy. Uh, and instead, we get to be like Henry now and what he called... Uh, uh, Christians, wounded healers, right? Like we're wounded healers. So we can offer healing, and yet we're also recognizing like, I have not arrived. And so I'd love to shout out to my own current disciple-making huddle that I've been walking for a, a year with. You know, we've had countless moments of this where we've actually confessed our stuff to each other, not just to God, but to each other. And, and, and still, the greatest moment was actually this past September on uh, September 11th. It just happened to be Wednesday, September 11th. It was an honest confession moment in ways that I've never experienced in 20 years of following Jesus. And so we're continuing to speak into each other. We're continuing to fight for each other and we'll continue to do that. And so it's really been actually the more open, the more honest, the more vulnerable we've been with each other, the more we've seen God bring healing. And so that's the confession, but then we repent as well. We don't only expose our crap, <laughs> right? We ask God to heal us. We bring accountability on ourselves, right? We learn to live interdependent with one another. Uh, and in that, again, the power of God's spirit aligns us with more and more of who he is and what he's up to in our life. Every single time anyone listens to what God is saying and actually obeys, leans in, says yes, there, the little bit more of the kingdom is, is coming in to bear on this earth. Right? A little bit more joy, a little bit more love, a little bit more love for one's enemy, a little bit more forgiveness, whatever it is, God's heavens are coming in in those moments. And so then finally, yes, disciple makers are also the lead contenders, right? We're called to fast and pray regularly uh, for those we're leading. We're called to fast and pray for networks of relationships, called to fast and worship and pray on behalf of the city. And here's the thing, the vast majority of that contending will happen in the mundane, Right? It'll happen in these quiet spaces, in homes, in living rooms, in prayer closets, a choice to wake up 30 minutes earlier, a choice to turn off the TV or media scroll, to turn off Alejandro late at night when I want to be checked out, and instead to actually say, okay, God, I'm showing up. Like, I want you. And even that five-minute reading of a psalm and a prayer with a spouse, man, that, that is a game changer, right? It's the choice to not check out mentally or emotionally. Because the last secret hidden question is just simply, is he worth it? Like, is he worth it? Because again, take the median income, take your income, take half your income, take whatever you want, right? This woman dumped out a lot right in front of Jesus. <laughs> uh, and for me, I go, gee, like in my, one, I've, I've never done that, actually done it, so I guess I know what's really in me. <laughs> uh, and, and what it puts me to do is to start pondering the gospel, Right, like it ponders the upside down economy of God's agape 
Because the reality is, even if we can't look to this woman, what we should know is that this God that we're worshiping, this Jesus, actually believed we were worth it. Like the extravagant act, the culminating act of worship for Jesus was offering his life on the cross. And he said that no one took it from him. (laughs) No one took his life from him. He actually voluntarily laid it down. So his act of extravagance was on a cross with outstretched arms, being mocked and shamed for you. Like his gift of worship was to be fully obedient to the Father so that we could be adopted into a spiritual family, so that we could uh, receive the love of God, to receive the voice uh, of God over our lives with him. And so my deepest encouragement this morning is to allow our hearts, our minds, our bodies to, to, to ponder that, to actually consider receiving the extravagant love of this crucified Christ on your behalf. Where we fail to contend often, Jesus did not fail to contend for us. And he offered his life up in that moment as, as the final or the act of, of culmination of that love. So here's three steps to consider for response. Like as we continue worshiping together, and uh, you know, there's, there's three that I wanna kind of invite you into. Uh, the first simply is, where are you confessing and repenting, right? So do you know what, what you're having challenges with? And so whether it's in a group, whether it's in a huddle, whether it's a, a friend that you trust, whether it's a spouse, I really wanna encourage you this week, schedule some conversation where you can own some of what you're in right, to, to, to bring some form of confession and, and to speak openly without defenses and without excuses. Like, what would it look like to know that that's one of the avenues of the, of the kingdom of God breaking in and this extravagant worship that starts to, to kind of birth up in us? Second is we want to just give opportunity, so it's not obligation, but just simply opportunity and invitation to extravagant worship. I mentioned at the beginning, but you know, Friday, April 10th, we're going to have an all-church-wide fast to sit in and fasting. You know, it's not like for the benefit of your physical health per se. It's actually out of saying, man, God, like we want you to break into our lives. Like we want more of your love, more of your kindness. Uh, we see what's in us. Oftentimes when, when I fast, mostly I see a lot more of my junk, not less of it. I'll just say that. And so we're calling the whole church to, to fast in, in preparation for Easter, in preparation of our city, in, in just wanting to bless our children and love them well. And so we'll be hosting service here 6 to 7 p.m. kind of as fast all day, come and worship all, that night. And there's even a few of us that are gonna keep pressing in and we'll actually be here from 6 p.m. till 12 a.m. worshiping and praying, and you're welcome to that. You're welcome to part of that. You don't have to come to any of it, right? But we want to just say, hey, there's going to be some people here who are leaning in uh, to asking God to move. And finally, you know, as we ponder the gospel, is what does it look like to potentially surrender your life to Christ? Uh, on Easter, we know we're going to have some baptisms. Uh, we, we know we have one person who's wanting to do that. And so prior to baptism, we always host simply baptism conversations. Like, what does that mean to get baptized? But why, why would I do that if I think it is my next step? And so uh, Sunday, March 29th, we will have that. Uh, so that's with me. It'll be right after service. Again, whether we're here, whether we're in homes, I will schedule with you. But if that's something you're desiring, pick up a welcome card, talk to me personally. I would love to sit down with you and talk through what does it mean uh, to be baptized, to broker claim your faith publicly to say that, yes, this Jesus is Lord and Messiah. All right, let's pray as we continue responding to worship. Thanks for checking in to the Serve Community Church podcast. If you're interested in more information on how to connect with our community, feel led to support us in any way you can or have any further questions, check us out online on social medias like Facebook or Instagram or at our website at servecc.org.